0: Tips weekend, 2018. This is Gary, talking about Step 10. Gary, I'm an alcoholic. I don't think I'll ever get used to these lights. Oh. You know, my home group is the Addison Group in Dallas, Texas. Um, we meet 29 times a week, throughout the week, throughout the day, and would welcome anybody who comes up to our area to come and join us. My sobriety date's the 13th of June, 1982, one day at a time, and I'm very grateful. It's been a wonderful weekend um, listening to the speakers and hearing the different experience, strength, and hope about the um, 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, whenever I'm asked to speak on a step, I'm reminded of a few things that my sponsor um, shared with me very early in my sobriety. The first thing he shared, and I think it's real important when we get to the steps uh, 10, 11, and 12, is to remember why I'm here. Remember why I'm doing this. You know, my purpose, in getting, my purpose in coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, my uh, purpose in working the steps has changed in the time that I've been here because my understanding of what's really on offer here has changed. And I have to keep that in mind. I have to uh, keep that front and center because I can lose sight of what the bigger purpose is by getting so wrapped around the axle on the smaller purpose of each step. We're forgetting that they all work together to accomplish a certain goal. You know, I didn't understand that when I came here, and I have to go back very briefly to when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not arrive here on a winning streak by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) I I, um, dragged my sorry little you-know-what up a long, creaky flight of stairs in the little town of St. Charles, Missouri, and along the Mississippi River where the Mississippi River and the Missouri River come together. So if you think Mark Twain and paddle wheel boats and that sort of thing, that's about the context. And I walked into that meeting, and I, was a, and I didn't realize how broken I was. What I did realize is how much out of control my drinking was. And I had reached the point where I understood in my heart of hearts that I was unable to stop it on my own, that I needed help. So I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to do things like continuing to take personal inventory, and I certainly didn't come here to promptly admit when I was wrong, because I couldn't promptly admit that I was ever wrong, but that's, that's a whole other story. But I wanted to get sober, and I was desperate. And so the only things that I heard when I got here was um, the message that dealt specifically with the first part of step one, with the not drinking. And I thought that that would be enough. You know, and I found that I didn't have to pick up a drink. You know, I found out the, uh, the characteristics of a real alcoholic, and I could identify with them. You know, I had the, the, um, the um, um, phenomenon of craving that Dr. Silfworth talked about. And over time, I came to understand that I had lost the power of choice in drink, that I was compelled to drink even when I didn't want to drink. You know, Dave talked about that, and the first night we were here, talked about the powerlessness before the first drink, the powerlessness after the first drink, and I could identify with both of those. And I made the mistake of thinking that that's all I had to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. If I just could identify with those, and I kept coming back, and I focused on not drinking, that uh, it was just a matter of time before I could be like many of the people that I saw in the rooms. Like I've seen here this weekend, you know, they, like the two speakers that came before me. You know, that, were that, that seemed comfortable in their own skin, that seemed to have a good attitude, that seemed to have a purpose in life. They seemed to have some direction in their life. They could, they could share without shame. They could share what they were like, what happened. They could share what they were like now. I couldn't do any of those things. And I was deathly afraid that you might actually find out something about me. So I built a wall around myself, and I kept my mouth shut in Alcoholics Anonymous, thinking that it was just a matter of time before, before, um, before I had what you had. And that day was not to come by doing it that way. And as I just shared the other, the, the other um, you know, earlier, th- um, You know, I got to a point in my early sobriety where I was getting sicker and sicker in these rooms, um, and I didn't understand why, and I was building up quite a resentment toward the members of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I would, just like I heard the other speakers talking about this feeling of being different, now I've been different out there, now I'm being different in here, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong with me, and that even Alcoholics Anonymous might not be able to fix it. You know, and then as I shared that somebody had the audacity to tell me to not quit before the miracle happened and I was ready to strangle that person (laughs) because I didn't see anything happening. And so I had to be driven back and I had to come to understand, going home from a meeting one night, the thought occurred to me that there had to be more to this than just not drinking. You know, and step ten is very much part of that more to this than not drinking. You know, I had to understand that what was really on offer here was a design for living, a way of life. Bill Wilson talks about it. You know, in the preface of the 12 and 12, he says that AA's 12 steps are a group of principles that are spiritual in their nature. And he puts a condition on he says, which if practiced as a way of life, could expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. All of the promises of alcohol were in that, without the alcohol. That's what I had been looking for in life. That was what was on offer here. A design for living that could, that could solve my drinking problem but could also solve my living problem could finally give me the life that I had searched for in all the wrong places. But the problem was is that I was going to have to embrace it as a way of life which meant that I was going to have to weave it into the fabric of my being. It wasn't a matter of just putting down the drink and continuing to live life the way I was living and then expect God to follow me around with a mop and a bucket to clean up my messes. But it was a matter of changing my fundamental approach to life in some pretty dramatic ways. And it took time coming around when I began to begin to understand what you people were trying to tell me, to realize that the people that had what I wanted were people that had actually changed from the inside out, who had woven this into the fabric of their being. You know, Bill talked about a way of life, a design for living, a way of life. What is a way of life? You know, I had never, you know, I was probably many years sober before those words registered and said, but what the heck is that? What is a way of life? I had a way of life when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe everybody does, although I can't speak for anybody else. And in simplest terms, a way of life is, how do I go about doing the fundamental things that life asks of me? And for me, it's very, I keep it very simple. There's five things that form my way of life. The first is, how do I set my priorities? I do that. Even when I was out there ripping and running, I wasn't a random person. I didn't act randomly. I had a way of life. I had a way of doing these things. You know, there was method to the madness or madness to the method. I don't know how you put it, but, but I didn't act randomly. I set my priorities a certain way. I have to do that throughout the day. How do I make my decisions? How do I, How do I make my decisions? I do that constantly throughout the day. Big ones, small ones. Something as simple as what what clothes am I going to wear today? Something more monumental. It might be, um, where am I going to go on vacation? How should I develop a career? What are my retirement goals? You know, those, those types of things. It can be big or small, but I make decisions. How do I, how do I engage with people? How do I engage with you? I do that constantly throughout the day. People that I know, people that I don't know. How do I take action? Am I reluctant? Do I get out there? Do I embrace action? Do I hide from action? Am I afraid of action? And then how do I respond to a world that's constantly changing? Lots of surprises during the day. Things crop up, things change, I have to alter my priorities, I have to alter my decisions, I have to alter my actions. It happens all the time. And I had to come and understand that however I was doing this when I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous it wasn't working or I wouldn't have been in Alcoholics Anonymous. My relationships with other people sucked if I even had them. I couldn't sleep at night. I was constantly living in fear. I was, and, and all of this was well intentioned. I never went out to cause serious harm. <laughs> Occasionally, I'd be spiteful, but my whole, my goal in life wasn't to be a jerk. And my goal in life was simply to be happy. And yet, my best thinking of putting together a design for living in terms of how I set my priorities, how I took action, how I made my decisions, how I interacted with people, and how I responded to the world didn't work. And what Bill was talking about is that if I take the 12 steps and I find myself a new design for living in there and I embrace it and I weave it into the fabric of my being, my world will change. And how did I know that? Because I saw other people in the rooms whose world had changed. Because they were doing this. They weren't talking about it. They were doing it. Now there were a few that were talking about it not doing it. And I, could, as, as I heard here, I could learn from them too. Some will teach me what to do. Some will teach me what not to do but the lessons can be learned both ways. And so with that as the backdrop, stepping back and taking a look at the the steps, then somewhere in those steps has got to be a new design for living. And I believe for me that it's in steps 10, 11, and 12 taken together on a daily basis. Because if I take those three steps and I integrate them into the fabric of my being, everything changes. How I will set my priorities will change. How I will make my decisions will change. How I will take action will change. How I will engage with people will change. And how I will respond to the world will change. But in order to get to those steps, I have to be given the framework for the new design for the living so that I know what I'm shooting for. And that was given to me at step three. And so I have to go back and I have to anchor myself at step three in order to share about steps 10 or step 11 or step 12. Because in step three, I was told what my new design for living had to be. And right before that in the big book, I was told why my old design for living didn't work. And it didn't work because it was based on the marvelously alcoholic idea that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, it told, told me that a life run on self-will could hardly be a success. What is a life run for self, on self-will? It's one where I am the authority in making my decisions. I think I know what's best. It's where I think I know how to set my priorities. I think I know what's best. I think I know how to engage with people. I'll use you, I'll abuse you, I'll do whatever I want, but I, but I put it all together and I go out there and it talks about I'm the actor and I ch- engage with people a certain way and I step on the toes of people not intending to and then they retaliate and then I don't know how to respond to them and then eventually you're the problem, I'm not the problem and it goes on and on and all I'm trying to do is be happy, all I'm trying to do is fit in, all I'm trying to do is relate with you and I'm driving you guys nuts and I'm destroying everything that I'm touching, how good is that? And the big book tells me that it can't possibly work because it said, was he not the victim of the delusion that he could wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only he managed it well? And there it was. And yet my whole life I had tried that. I had teachers. That was the the ethic I was raised with. And I think we're very well-intentioned. I was raised in a great country, the all-American dream. Get out there, make yourself happy, go out there... You can conquer the world. There's opportunities everywhere. Get an education. Get out there. Be competitive. Don't, ad- don't acknowledge a weakness. Don't allow anybody to take advantage of you and you can climb the ladder. You can have it all. The world can be your oyster. My dad was a great example of that. He came from a very poor family in the depression. He had to work as a child to put money to put food on the table and he resented the hell out of it. So he went off and he put himself through college at a time when not many people went to college. But he put himself through college, and he went to Chicago and started out at the, at the entry level uh, in, in, a, in, a major com- in a major broadcast company in Chicago. And over the course of 30, 35 years of building a career, he retired on the board of directors of a major international advertising agency. He was very successful, a very good man. He was a, a very good role model for what I tried to follow. But what I didn't recognize is that while he was a good man, he was not a happy man. Because he was dealing with all the externals, and was unable to deal with the internals, where happiness really comes from. And I didn't understand that I could not create my own happiness. I could not create my own good relationships. I could not create that. You know. And when I get to the point where I run out of ideas, I get scared. And when I get scared, I start acting. I start acting um, recklessly. And I start getting. I start getting fearful. And when I get fearful, I become very selfish. Selfishness is not my nature. I'm the child of my creator. Step three told me that. So I'm not by nature selfish, but selfishness is my reaction to fear, and fear is my reaction to a world that I can't control where I'm running out of ideas. My whole design for living based on the fact that I've got to figure it out. There's no plan B in this. And and so I'm screwed. That's the hopelessness of the unmanageability of my life. It's unmanageable when I attempt to manage it. It doesn't matter about drinking. Drinking became my way of coping with it. And step three gave me a new design for living. Okay, Gary, if you can't do it, something bigger than yourself better do it. Live life on God's terms rather than life on my terms. And the terms were laid out. I was told to stop doing something, to start doing something, and to enter into two relationships. Stop playing God. Stop thinking I know what I'm doing. Then take direction. He was the father, we were his children, he was the director, we were his agent. Be a respectful spiritual child. And then the marching orders for the new design for living. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. That's the context I need to keep in mind. That's what's important when I take a look at that. What is my real goal? We have a new employer. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Every aspect of my being has to change if I embrace that. How I'm going to set my priorities is going to have to change. How I make my decisions is going to have to change. How I engage with people is going to have to change. How I take action is going to have to change. How I respond to a changing world is going to have to change. That's what is really on offer for this alcoholic and that's an integral piece of it. Because it tells me that I need to stay focused and I need to get back on track. And once I embrace that design for living by taking the third step prayer, the only thing that matters is making it happen. Steps 4 to 9 are there to prepare me for it, and then we get to step 10. And step 11 and step 12, they all go together. The real goal here is to stay close to God and perform his work well, and that is to keep me doing it. So when I get wrapped up in my own world and I go back to my old alcoholic thinking... The essence of step 10 tells me, as quickly as possible, get out of it and get back to business. Don't make a small thing into a big thing. If it has become a big thing, cut it off at the knees. But the focus is not to focus on the problem. It's for me to get back into the solution. You know, I I sometimes go to meetings, and it's it's really kind of funny. I can observe, and, and, and this is not meant to be critical of any individual. But I'll hear someone come into my home group and they'll be talking about the resentment du jour. And they'll start explaining how they're working on this resentment. And they'll come back later and they'll be still working on this resentment. And still working on this resentment. And what have they done? Have they done that? I can learn from that. Are they staying close to God and performing His work well? Or are they telling God two things that perhaps God doesn't want to hear? Number one is, my resentment is more important than your agenda. And number two, I don't think you're gonna help me. Nowhere in that big book have I found that it tells me that I should be working on these things. It tells me that when they crop up, I'm to ask God at once to remove them. And I can rely on that because it promised me that he would provide what I need if I stay close to him and perform his work well. And if my goal is to get back to being of service and to being productive, and, to, and to doing things constructive, then he's got every reason to want to help me, if that's my motive. Not to focus on the problem, but to ask him at once to remove it as quickly as possible, then mop up the mess if I need to make an amend, if I need to talk to somebody, but then resolutely t- turn my thoughts to someone I can help. The big book can't be more clear than that that I'm to get out of the problem as soon as possible and get back into the design for living where I can finally be productive in God's service to him and to my fellows. And I'll tell you what, standing here, that's hard to do sometimes because my world can become too important for me. I'm so wrapped around the axle over this person or that behavior or this or that that I'm getting distracted from the bigger picture. I've lost my focus. I've taken the fly and i put it under the microscope and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger not because the fly is getting bigger, it's because its importance is getting too big. Because I'm zeroing in on the problem. Rather than recognizing that as soon as these crop up, the action that I'm supposed to take is to ask God at once to remove it, to remove myself from it. And I'll tell you when I do that, when I'm resentful, when I'm angry, when something is really under the microscope, that shiny object is blinding me, it can be harder than hell to take my eyes off of it. But I also understand that when I do that, and I remember what this is saying promptly, and I get back into the business, I uh, look at if I've done any damage, fine, clean it up, but then get back into the mainstream of life, get back into being of service. In other words, give God reasons to want to help me. And if I do that and I come back later, if that resentment crops up, it's in a totally different context. If I even think about it. You know, that's the, that's the thing I have to keep in mind front and center is why am I really here? I'm not here to live in the problem. This tells me not w- if I am wrong, but when I am wrong. I'm going to make mistakes constantly. There's not a day that doesn't go by if I take an honest inventory at the end of the day that I can't find a bunch of things that I, I could have done a lot better, that, were, that were perhaps could have been a little bit less selfish, could have been a little less destructive. That's fine. I'm human. God gave me a free will. He knows I'm going to make mistakes using it. But where do I put my priorities? Is the goal to stay there? No. The goal is to be of service. The goal is to get out there on the firing line of life. And to the degree that I squander the hours that I've been given that could otherwise be worthwhile, the degree that I'm robbing God of the time that he gave me to be productive. I'll tell you what, I don't do this thing perfectly. If, my God, if I did, I wouldn't be standing here. But I have to be reminded of the bigger picture that my sponsor shared in the beginning. He says, Gary, never lose sight of why you're here. You've been given a design for living. That's where God gets his payoff. That's where you get your payoff. Don't let anything get in the way of it, is what he told me. He said, use step 10. Use it as the means to get back on track as quickly as possible. Don't get distracted by what's in front of you. There's lots of shiny objects on this planet. They're everywhere. He says, but don't allow them to distract you from the bigger purpose. Because the real joy that I'm seeking, the real happiness, the real peace and the serenity can only come through his grace. And it promises me that he'll provide what I need. But the condition is that I have to stay close to him and perform his work well. And it's been a real privilege and honor to be here today. Thanks. Information about the annual Melbourne AA Steps Weekend is available from www.stepsweekend.aagroup.org.au. Thanks for letting us share.